Everyone's closing <laughs> your eyes, right? And you can still talk in this game. Mm-hmm. And when you want to, at any time, you open your eyes and uh, put your finger on your nose. Like that, right? Mm-hmm. If you're the first person around the room to do this, or like one of the first three, you lose. Oh. If you're the last your person, you definitely lose. Oh. Oh. So you think uh, four people lose and the rest of us are winners? Yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's do this thing. Yeah. Three, Somebody two, watching. one. Close your eyes. I have just I opened my eyes and touched my nose. Well, now we know there's only two people. No, I, yeah. I didn't. I'm lying. Patrick, because okay. now the game is to two. Okay, my eyes are open. Yeah. How many, how many fingers open. am I holding up? There are already there are already three people with their eyes open. Yeah, right. How many fingers am I holding up? I think there are probably more like eleven people with their eyes open. No, seriously. No, there's now five people serious. with their eyes open. Oh no! <laughs> six. There's six people with their eyes. Seven. Doug, you can't. <laughs> this is so good. There are seven. All right, so fuck you. <laughs> I'm about to open my eyes. Seven people with their eyes open. Uh, still seven. Still okay, seven. Wait. There are eight people uh. with their eyes open now. <laughs> There are eight people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, no. That was very close. Wait, though. is second to last that a special privilege too? Because yeah, so. Doug Wait. started pumping. Who got second to last? Doug. Doug. No. We've <laughs> done you wrong. We've no. done you wrong. Okay. Welcome to Every Game in the City, a podcast about 10 game makers, curators, and researchers who met up in Malaysia for a week to try and play every escape room in Kuala Lumpur. I'm Patrick Lemieux. I'm Goldie Bartlett. I'm Jay Biddle. I'm Stephanie Bola. I'm Laura E. Hall. I'm Alexandra Lee. I'm Lee Shanglun. I'm Amani Nassim. I'm Chad Toprak. I'm two-time winner of Shanglun's No, 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 no. That's Doug Wilson. And this week, we're joined by another special guest, Clarissa Lee. Clarissa is a research fellow at the Jeffrey Sachs Center on Sustainable Development at Sunway University. And she joined us for her first and our 30th escape room at the Fifth Room Parlor in my town, another mall just a couple kilometers from where we started in Berjaya Times Square. Before we get into it, we're going to talk to Clarissa about the paradoxes of sustainable development in Malaysia, some of her interdisciplinary work on aging playfully, and play as a potential method for academic research. Right, and tonight is really great because one, I'm moderating. <laughs> Finally. Uh, uh, two, we hit 30 escape rooms. Woo! Yes! 3-0. What an achievement. I'm not sure if we were aiming for 30. It seems significant. Hey, I feel like before we left, we were aiming for 35 across the entire No, I think week. 30, actually. My gosh. Wait, I want to play 30 myself. <laughs> so we're, I'm, we're, I'm about halfway there. No, it was 35. I just want tonight to be significant because uh, we also have another guest joining us. Uh, so Clarissa Lee is here. Uh, she's a research fellow at the Jeffrey Sachs Center of Sustainable Development at Sunway University. And she joined us at the Fifth Room uh, out in my town, uh, another mall, to play uh, some more escape rooms. Everybody say hi. 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 And and I think it's worth noting too that while we hit thirty, Clarissa, this is your first Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is your first escape room ever. Ooh, never. Right? Yeah. Ever. Wow. Yes. I didn't realize that. So wait, before we dive into uh 
fifth room and all the escape rooms. Um, I think the only thing we know about Sunway is a giant pyramid and a mall. So, like, what's and the Sphinx? What, don't forget the Sphinx. Sphinx. Don't never. Yes. <laughs> don't forget the Sphinx. You didn't say. You did oh, right you in front of the pyramid. So so that's that's it. That, that <laughs> I know it's not a real Sphinx. No, Amani's talking about Grandpa Lion. Oh. It's different. No, no, no. What's no, a grandpa event? That was in the entrance. But the one above the building. <laughs> yes, that's okay. So, wait. <laughs> but but beyond, beyond the Sunway Mall and Pyramid, what's working at Sunway University like? What's well, your job like? Well, Sunway University is, I think, more than 10,000 steps away from the mall. Okay. It's actually connected <laughs> by what you call the Canopy Walk to encourage students and staff and visitors who come to the university or go to the mall to kind of like walk between mm-hmm. the different buildings so you can actually walk to the hotels you can walk to Sunway Lagoon you can walk to the mall and you can walk to the university and if you walk further down you also reach a Australian university that's in Malaysia Monash University mm-hmm. Melbourne yeah. Yeah. yeah which is just right next to the BRTs it's actually just walking across and we do uh, have some kind of working relationship with Monash University Mm-hmm. Um, you'll know more about what I do. Yeah, so uh, Clarissa and I studied together at Duke University where she was working across a ton of different disciplines from mathematics yeah. to philosophy. Yeah. This is like what Clarissa does. Is she like works in these interstices that like both baffle the various discourses involved, but also produce really uh, new forms of knowledge. Yeah, so. I baffle a lot of people. That's basically <laughs> my motto, actually. And that's my tagline. Clarissa baffles it all. And so Clarissa knows it all. Oh. <laughs> so, I love it. Yeah. Really cool. So what are some projects yeah. that you're working on like right now? Uh, what, what's the current research like? Because you were working on something at Duke for a while, but now yeah. you're back in Malaysia. So Yeah, I've been back in Malaysia for three years. And the work that I've done, there's a kind of pragmatic element to it, but there's also a desire to also do some of those things that I couldn't really do when I was at Duke. Mm-hmm. By the very same time, um, I was also trying to bring some of the methodologies and some of the explorations I made when I was at Duke in the US and traveling to Europe and all these other places to try to connect, kind of interface with the, the objects the knowledge base and also the kind of like rich material that I can find in Malaysia, but not just Malaysia, but Southeast Asia as well. You know, I'm actually studying with Malaysia because mm-hmm. there's just so much things there that are untapped. And the thing for me is because I'm trained as a comparativist, mm-hmm. so I'm able to actually see comparisons in ways that a person trained in area studies, for instance, tend to miss because they are so ingrained with a particular discourse, you know, a stream of thought and also like a very set way of seeing things that you often find a lot of repetition but without much difference or with only like very minute difference. And mm-hmm. I think when I come in as a person who is not trained in area studies, not even trained in Southeast Asian studies or Malaysian studies, so technically as an outsider. And I think one of the things I guess I should emphasize is that I've always been like an outsider scholar, mm-hmm. regardless of where I've been, because I've never really felt at home in a single discipline, which also made it hard on the job market. Because for the first year, <laughs> I was completely disillusioned and depressed because I didn't know how to even brand myself. Right. And I decided actually sometime early last year that I decided to stop branding myself as a disciplinary scholar. Because I realized that regardless of what I do, it's always going to be at the intersection of things. Mm-hmm. And uh, from talking to people and also seeing how the university has developed, 
these days is that it's actually the most interesting stuff comes up from these intersections. Um, well, I want to unpack mm-hmm. a, a few things because, yeah. like, there's a lot going on here. Mm-hmm. First of all, uh, you're from Malaysia. Like, yeah, so I'm from you Malaysia. Here. Yeah. So this this kind of outsiderness also comes with uh, working on kind of the country you grew up in, yeah. but in these um, disciplinary contexts that put pressure on things yeah. like Malaysian mm-hmm. history or, yeah. or what we know about Malaysia. The other thing I wanted to kind of like ask about or, or tweak is that like uh, many of us on the podcast are academics. Like mm-hmm. uh, some of us are coming from these interdisciplinary spaces mm-hmm. in university contexts. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting to have Clarissa on the podcast uh, to kind of tie in this other part of the contingent. You know, we have yeah. a lot of game designers, but we also have like some professors here and researchers. Um, so this is kind of like coming in today in a mm-hmm. way. And I think maybe the final thing or final thing I was noticing is that games by their multimedia and multidisciplinary nature also have this kind of intersection between discourses. And we saw today, like in the escape room, that there's like a lot at play in thinking about technology and uh, theming and narrative. And then also like the history of the place that you're playing in. Yeah. It's the same thing with sustainable development, right? How it ended up in the center. I mean, I came originally through more conventional routes um, in the two universities I worked in before. Mm-hmm. And one thing about sustainable development that it is already by default a very interdisciplinary space. And one thing about that is also there's a lot of the imagery that actually goes on in that because it's about imagining supposedly a sustainable future mm-hmm. and how is that supposed to look like. Of course, you might say sustainability and uh, development are oxymorons that don't really go well together because when there's development, it's hard to sustain because you can't quite develop sub- something and still sustain. I mean, it's contradictory to the nature <laughs> of development itself. Wow. But this is actually where there's a lot of space and there's also where you have like scholars and even practitioners who are non-academics coming from various spaces coming together and trying to imagine these spaces. And what is rich about it is not just like, you know, traditional, be- I mean, scholars like economists, you know, people who look at uh, finance and businesses and you know, the more conventional stuff, but also people who, like, come from more creative backgrounds who are not necessarily trained as artists, but they are, like, from STEM, for instance, science, mm. technology, engineering, and medicine, who want to bring, like, certain artistic practices to solving localized problems. Like, one of the projects that I do, actually, as a sustainable sustainability scholar, and interestingly, I was never in training in the area, even mm-hmm. though that's actually a school uh, the Nicholas <laughs> right. School that trains people. You kind of have the moonlight under that. these different like <laughs> yeah. uh, discourses, yeah. Yes, and I never imagined like when I first came back, I wanted to bring like uh, you know like science fiction prototype of thinking about imagining about possible futures and bringing like more ludic elements of creating knowledge, which mm-hmm. I feel is pretty much missing from the picture and even missing from how. Uh, knowledge creators even in so-called cutting edges of technology and science are operating in Malaysia and I actually went to the government I went to various agencies but there were not many doors that were open and (laughs) even the people who expressed interest kind of got nervous and pulled back after that and it's only three years down the line that it was through sustainable development that I was able to come back to this and I never thought actually that this would happen because it all started when I went to this um, networking meeting with a bunch of academics from Lancaster and I mm-hmm. accidentally met 
this guy who is from the Imagination Center in Lancaster, and they actually specialize in using play, like playfulness of different varieties right. to think about all kinds of matters. And it so happens that he was in this group that th- who, that thinks about aging playfully and basically like connecting with uh, older adults who could be, well, they could be experts, but they also can be just ordinary people. So this is how, this is how like your larger research project on kind of interdisciplinary knowledge works, or maybe like the history of knowledge Mm -hmm. in Malaysia intersects with the type of work we're doing in this group, right? Yeah. Uh, Where somehow play can be used as a tool or a hinge to kind of unveil or look for these types of intersections that would otherwise be ignored. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we, we think about play in childhood all the time, but mm-hmm. I actually don't know if I've ever heard anybody talk about play in elder care mm-hmm. as, like, an incredible site of potential. And speaking as somebody that's aging, <laughs> I mean, we all are, I guess. Like, I don't know, this seems like I'm really interested there's to a kind know of, a lot more about that. It, there's a kind of, like, discourse around, like, brain games and, like, dementia mm-hmm. and Alzheimer's yeah. and yes. kind of disability, but yeah. usually it's in a rehabilitation context or mm-hmm. a health context. <laughs> How does your way of thinking playfully consider Malaysian culture or like bring in kind of the Malaysian history that you've been working on? Okay. Um, First, let me explain how I got into this aging project. I didn't get into it just because I was interested in aging, Mm -hmm. but because the aging itself intersects with many disciplines, Mm -hmm. for instance. When I was a grad student, right, I happened to, by accident for, well, partly because it has to do with my background as well, work on physics and speculative thinking, right? And by doing aging, I can now work with people who look at the social technical of aging. So I can work with scientists and medical practitioners and healthcare practitioners who look at the scientific social aspect of aging. But I can also work with people who provide social services and technologists who are creating uh, social technical services mm-hmm. for uh, targeted at older adults as well. Right. But at the very same time, we always think that aging is just about people who are over 65 but actually starts beyond, beyond that. <laughs> and how you need to prepare society and prepare infrastructures towards that goal. Because one of the biggest questions about aging is how is it sustainable and how is it financially sustainable? Mm. Right. And it's not just talking about pure economics because numbers can actually be manipulated, you know, but it's also about how do you get, I mean, economics is just like the end point of it, but how, what is that process? Right. And I think the process part is actually what is missing. And I find aging very useful for thinking about that. Not specifically just aging as a topic, but mm-hmm. what it can tell you about other areas. You can also talk about youth just by looking at aging, for instance. Right. You can also talk about how perception change over time and you work it backwards. Mm-hmm. And there's also kind of like a reverse rejuvenation aspect to it mm-hmm. when older adults engage also with play. I work on a game called Wayward Strand, which is about uh, a nursing home in Australia mm-hmm. in the late seventies, and this is just like uh, you just. I just want to talk to you more and more and find out, <laughs> or, or be pointed in the right direction to find some of the findings mm-hmm. on this stuff because we've done some anecdotal research by mm-hmm. talking to a lot of elderly people, mm-hmm. um, as well as like nurse care professionals and and um, but talking a little bit about aging. Um, just yeah, anecdotally has been so interesting. Yeah, and I think I think one of the things that's being touched on here is that um, 
play can work as a hinge to learn about lots of different things. And I think like a lot of the projects in the room, whether they be like design oriented or academic, mm -hmm. uh, play doesn't necessarily function just as like an output or an effect, mm -hmm. but is in fact like the thing you're studying to learn something. Yeah. Um, and I know in my case, like uh, play is the area I'm interested in because it reveals things about the history of technology yeah. that other modes of practice don't. Yeah. Um, and that's specifically because play um, is imagined to be ephemeral or mm -hmm. immaterial. There are all these different ways we think about it, at least in the States, in North America, that are precisely the reason that the things uncovered by play are so important to me yeah. as somebody who cares about the history of technology or something like yeah. that. And I was wondering some of the other ways maybe that play is useful um, outside of just um, producing fun, maybe. Yeah, I was actually going to answer your question about the history of knowledge bit. Okay. Because before you can actually design a play like, uh, let's say a workshop, right? When mm -hmm. you're trying to bring out the best of the participants, you do actually have to do a lot of research into their background, into the history of their field. Also, you know, even into the history of the kinds of knowledge they work with and how right. they be receptive or not. Because like in Malaysia, the... Uh, this area of speculative design or design fictions is very new. And when I even introduced it initially to my collaborators who come from more traditional disciplines, I mean, it completely boggled their mind. But now <laughs> they get it and they are one of the staunchest advocate for that. Really? You know, yeah, they have. I mean, they haven't Truth. completely grasped it all, but they really thought it really worked well. And they have now, like, you know, work, like, I have a biologist. Now she's wanting to work with me to mm -hmm. think about speculative biology it, is and this, aging. Is this through, like, their engagement with practice that is making yeah. or, or like the the process of playing that is so powerful for them yeah and i think they're starting to get it because it's not just me standing up there and giving them a two-hour lecture on how this works yeah but basically throwing them into the workshop and forcing yeah. them to facilitate mm -hmm. and they have to basically <coughs> learn on the ground while like not right. quite figuring out how to do it and learning along the way and learning along with the participants of the workshops and even the participants themselves were like kind of like a little bit taken aback by it because they never done this <laughs> in their entire lives right but then I realized that when they were doing it like even they said oh it's like my net time it's like but so I asked them do you want to take a break no 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 I want to continue this and interestingly I've never actually done the class with 18 year olds where the students would say hey can we extend the class mm -hmm. whereas I've done this with older adults who will say like, oh yeah. it's 5 o'clock don't worry about time just go on That's so yeah I, want to do this I was kind of wondering wondering like in the case of Amani like your activist practices or your mm -hmm. curatorial practices or Doug like the research you're doing is do you consider play in this kind of um, process based or, or practice based way or is it like a, a contrast to kind of the way we've been talking about it so far or, or is that too much of like a hardball I'm, I'm, Doug's uh, eyes just uh, uh, kind of glazed no, over it. I, um, the conversation is too long for this podcast yeah. um, I, I actually have uh, more skepticisms about the concept of play these days. Sure. there's no way we can but the only thing I would say here is um, I do think this is kind of what this trip is doing and what this yeah. method is doing where this isn't just a project to like categorize escape rooms yeah. or like to learn how to design a better escape room or even just to have fun the method itself is playful those podcasts that we're doing right now is playful and it's yeah. hopefully in that kind of like heterogeneous mm -hmm. group playful experience that we're going to learn something new about um i wouldn't say malaysia per se but like uh forms of games internationally yeah. learning things mm -hmm. from other cities other so, traditions so that's like that's yeah. everything we're talking about is like yeah. what we're doing as I speak right now. So something I actually wanted to ask before the break was um, 
Malaysian play. Mm-hmm. Like, if you, like, what is, for you, like, as someone who, who grew up in Malaysia, mm-hmm. um, like, when you think of, like, Malaysian games or Malaysian play, like, what what comes to mind? Like, what, uh, for you, is the kind of cultural center of, of playful activities in this country? This is a big one, but, like, just personally, like, what, what comes to mind? Is it mobile games or, or video games? Is it escape rooms? Is it board games? Like, it's, what is... It's not even video games. It's uh-huh. not even board games. I remember when I was a kid in... Equivalent to what a great school is. Like, the school actually used... I don't know if they still do, but they used to keep a lot of all these traditional games. Yeah. So you can play games with marbles. You can play games... Okay, you can play... We have like our own version of Hopscotch as well. They can play this thing, what you call Batu Seremban. Mm-hmm. Can you I'm teach not sure us? You're this. Uh, I don't have that <laughs> actually with me right now. But it's, based, it's also a counting game because you do like multiplications and you do additions with that. I think he knows about this, yeah, right? I think yeah. Indonesia also has a version of that as well. So, and it's very simple. You did, you can make all kinds of versions with it. You can put like, you can take pouches and sew little pouches, especially seven of it. And then mm. you can put either rice grain or seeds or whatever in that. And you actually play with that. So, so, so when we're playing uh, these escape rooms or like Mala- uh, mobile games that are mm-hmm. made in Malaysia, there aren't references to like these no. folk traditions of play. No. So, like, what is going on there? Like, why aren't any of the escape rooms um, uh, Malay-themed? I think it actually also... I feel like it also connects to the way designers are trained. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think... Um, yeah. And because there's no, like, a standard curriculum, right? It also depends on, <clears throat> like, the kind of teachers that they had. And in Malaysia, that for quite a while, I think it's slowly changing from what I gather is that there's a lot of emphasis on like technical competency, but very little on content. I know that because when I first came back, I used to teach in the School of Social Science and Arts, and I was actually in the English department, but I had to teach a number of communication students who are good, you know, if you want to... I mean, they're training to be future PR people, uh, designers, copywriters, and all that. And they're very competent, actually, in the technique of doing all this. Right. But what they liked a lot was actually content. And I remember, like, because I was teaching this elective class, which was funny, because it's actually called Eastern Civilization. Mm-hmm. And basically, I had to teach them about history, philosophy, you know, mm-hmm. of East, Central, and South Asia. Mm-hmm. And Southeast Asia as well. Oh. And it covers everything from art to philosophy to yeah. literature to religion to various even mystical beliefs. I mean, basically everything. <laughs> it was a survey course, but it was very hard to do. It took me hours of preparation. And what I forced them to do for the class is that each of them had to take turns to give a lecture. I only mm-hmm. probably gave like two lectures in the entire semester, but they all have to like, one person has to talk about traditional Chinese medicine. Imagine an 18-year-old boy with no background trying to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. even though they might have come from Chinese medicine, but they don't have yeah. it. <laughs> this is something interesting, right? Like, we observe this in the rooms where the craft of the room was exquisite in mm-hmm. many cases, but there was no art or meaning or, or semantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly no cultural context that links mm-hmm. the whole thing together to, like, they're not referencing particular architectures. The theme is only good, quite shallow. Yeah. Um, so so there's so many people who want to talk. So, like, Stephanie wants to say something, Chad. Uh, let's let's go around. Let's clear. Well, I, the other thing, though, is, like, like, totally agree with all this, but also we should maybe problematize some of yeah. this, like... Uh, this isn't just like a, oh, there's people in Asia, yeah. uh, they're good at technique, but aren't good. Like, this is true in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. It's certainly true in Australia. What does it mean to make uh, an authentic American game actually 
pulling from American folk traditions rather than just like, oh great, it's another uh, Harry Potter-esque Escape, do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. worth pointing out this is yes. not just a Malaysian problem. Yeah. It's not even just a uh, like smaller problem. country problem. It's yeah. I think it's just a general global culture issue. But past like you know we critique video games <laughs> for being really insular and then the end product just referencing a lot of the times themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it feels like the same critique being applied here. You're right. It's not a Malaysian problem. Yeah. There isn't an escape room mm. problem. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Actually, I also want to point out that. The emphasis is not so much about that the whole there's no such thing as an authentic Malaysian culture yeah. because like the US we are basically a country of immigrants. Yeah. There's a fusion of a lot of things. So when I say that the content is lacking, it's not like oh it must have like a Malaysian team because that will be basically going back the same kind yeah. of propagandish thinking mm-hmm. right. that our governments have basically been forcing down our throats. But it's basically thinking about like go back to the question yeah. of knowledge, right? We always think yeah. there's a particular set of knowledge that belongs to a region without thinking of the account that knowledge is always transnational and it's porous. Yeah. But the thing yeah. is like as they travel, how do they change? Yeah. Like it's just like a rolling stone, right? Gathers moss. Mm-hmm. So I would say not gather no moss. But actually gathers moss. What are the colours of the moss that's gathered by that yeah. stone? Ooh. Right? And yeah. what comes out of that in the end? I mean, like we talked, I know there's like a lot of work that tried to, for example, connect between what's going on in the West and China, for mm-hmm. instance. And kudos to the Chinese for actually going all out to actually do that. But in Southeast Asia, we haven't really done enough of that. Largely, maybe because we labor under a sense of low, low self-esteem in terms of our appreciation of our knowledge. We always feel we are not good enough mm-hmm. and that we don't have any knowledge worth. Like when I came back and I wanted to do history of science and technology, history of knowledge, people would come up to me and say, like, what's the point? There's nothing mm. here. Mm-hmm. And the same thing as well with Southeast Asia. Even though no one had a problem when white scholars come and do the same thing, right. but mm-hmm. it's a problem when the people in the region try to do that. Why is that a problem? And I know there's also a resistance towards doing that because they feel like it's just falling back into the same whole Foucauldian imperialist way of categorizing knowledge that's highly problematic. But instead of finding a way around it, it's just like, we're just not going to do it. Mm. It, it might not be intentional, mm-hmm. but it's how it looks like. Mm. Yeah, and I think that this gets to... Well, maybe maybe when Foucault is dropped, it's time for a break. Is that, uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that where we're at? Yeah. 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 So, so it's also about 40 degrees. Yeah, so, yes. so let's take a short uh, break and we'll be back. And uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit through our experiences Whoa. today. Oh, yeah. yeah. Get ready. We thought we were salty boys yesterday. We're now bitter boys. No, what? Speak for yourself. Sweet boys. Sweet boys. Sweet boys. Transcendent. See you in a bit. Alright. After the break, the team chats a bit about my town, or rather, food town. The food court in the basement of yet another mall, which actually housed the fifth room in one of its courtyard restaurant spaces. And now we're going to kind of get back into what happened today. Uh, hitting the wall. Mm. The big 3-0. 30 <laughs> rooms. And Metaphorically and literally. Our 30th had to be, it was destined to be at a fifth room. At my town, actually, it was at Food Town, the basement of my town, where all the shops are. And this is in the middle of KL, right? Yeah. yeah. So basically, this is outside of a food court. There was like a little uh, kind of patio area, and then that opened to 
what I think Laura identified as like a restaurant. Yeah, right? it's a retail restaurant space. Like you walk in and it's the concierge desk or the host desk and the, the bar. And then all of the games are sort of in the back space where normally there'd be tables. I was pumped about the bar because so many times at these escape rooms, we need like water or Coke or yeah. something mm -hmm. in between. And it makes sense to like yeah. have a tea. But the experience uh, was not tea drinking experience. Mm -hmm. It was, was something else. Exceptionally good. But, uh, but not <laughs> that. No, I feel like when I say experience, it's not necessarily just what are the rooms, but like how we're doing, like checking in. Uh, and I think this okay, I was the question. one where we stopped making question. sense. <laughs> yeah. I have a question. How many people put their heads on the walls today? That doesn't help. Just almost everyone in the room has their hands up. Yeah. No, I didn't. So. Well done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're not, you're not dirty so you escape room. Every single hand in the room just shot up. So hitting the wall, heads on walls, Exhausted. Heads on floors, like yeah. heads on ceilings. <laughs> I hit my. <laughs> like this is going to be a really interesting discussion because we did hit walls, yep. and I think we had uh, we have a lot of like critiques that we uh, have delivered like against other escape rooms that would apply today. But there's also like meta stuff going on that's more exciting to talk about, like the hitting the wall that I hope we can mm. get into today. Yeah, and I wanted to say that. When Doug was first telling me about this trip and sort of the purpose of the trip and what, um, at least on the academic side, they were hoping to get out of it, mm. he described it as sort of overloading your body and your mind with this experience. And through the repetition, <laughs> through the repetition, kind of transcending it a little bit and seeing what comes out of it and like aiming in a way for this out-of-body experience. Mm. And I, I had to actually experience something like that personally at my old job, where I had to watch a film like 20 times. And then when the film was released, everybody wanted to go see it in the theaters, and I had to like see it multiple more times. And like I understood exactly <laughs> what he was talking about because I had done that. And that's where we are now. <laughs> like It's just enough lack of sleep and like trudging through these that we are sort of like in this new space. Honestly, I didn't feel like I would reach that. I was kind of resisting. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to treat this as a whole day. I'm going to take it easy. Uh, but today, for the first time, I just sat down on the on the floor. <laughs> I just I disconnected. Done. <laughs> yeah. I was so excited. I, w I wonder whether, like, I mean, yesterday felt like an overwhelmingly positive experience. We had a lot of really great things to say, and I just <clears throat> it's happenstance that we today we played the games that we played. Uh, I don't know how deeply we're going to dive into exactly what happened and exactly what caused us to, to literally have our heads against the walls many times. But I just wonder if, you know, if today the games had been yesterday's games, it would have been the same or different. That's a really good question. Yeah. I, I, I want to sort of answer your question, but uh, I think Sean Moon actually... You sort of may want to qualify. Yeah, not everyone <laughs> liked the escape rooms yesterday. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure. Can I, can I phrase it this way? Um, I I think the symptom for this hitting the wall was for me. I think I, today, like it was during the rooms, I felt my tastes mutating. Mm -hmm. So I was no longer hungering for good, quote unquote, good escape rooms. I was hungering for interestingly bad escape rooms like that's how I feel now like I would be way more excited and wow. we could talk about what that means I like I'm still trying to figure out myself what that means but I think there was this moment um in the, in the first room we did the mummy and, and Laura and Goldie <laughs> and Alex saw this 
where I was just like, I had the first time, like, I really just don't want to be here. I don't care about these puzzles. Oh, God, we can't find this key. And then someone pointed this out to me, and I was like, yes, I've hit this road. <laughs> yeah. um, so there were multiple times today, because of the fact that this was a restaurant space and that the they had contracted walls in that didn't go all the way up to the ceiling, yes. there were yeah, many we moments yeah, today everyone. where we'd be standing in, like, haha Circus, the horror clown show, <laughs> or, like, the subway train, or, like, some... Uh, uh, Judge Dread Prison, and we hear Doug Wilson cries like Eminem. No, what does this mean? What does this mean? Yeah. Yes. Why? 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 Yeah. Why? Yeah. 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 So it looks like the walls are so thin that we're able to communicate with the other people here. I saw the biggest eye roll from Sean Lu that I've ever seen coming out of a room. It was a whole body eye roll. So apart from like the really cheap wood paneling, even in like the 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 first escape room that we're in, which was. The judge. Oh yeah, I we should say. Can we say the names of the rooms? Oh. Uh, so it was Haha ha Circus. <laughs> <laughs> Lives up to his name. Accurate. Good. Uh -huh. Good. The bunny. The unlucky un 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 right. Not the cursed bunny. Yeah. True, <laughs> un truly unlucky. Uh, Subway what? terror. Subway terror. And, and judge. The judge. The judge. No, just judge. Oh, no, the judge. judge. The judge. Oh, wait, we were all so excited and intrigued by the name, the judge, that we were all like, "This is what we're all going to do." Yeah. yeah. Little did we Again, know. Again, like, like yesterday, the graphic design wasn't terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So the yeah. lobby was really similar to yesterday's in terms of a set of posters that were kind of. Um, designed as if they were film posters mm -hmm. uh and then, <coughs> well, well oh. this was the first sign right the, mm. the room descriptions were on the posters but they were formatted in the style of text under movie posters yes. where it's yeah. like a small title large name yeah mm -hmm. same but, font but the sentences were just what those sizes, yeah, we got really excited about that. <laughs> but the subway terror one was just like, you get on a subway and go to work with your colleagues. Yeah. But because of the way it's written in my head, you read it as, you get on the train <laughs> with your co-workers. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of day we're having anyway, yeah, that's the escape room um, of our lives. I don't know if anyone else has noticed, but um, a lot of the posters, it'll have this like little phrase, you get on the train, something, or did it? Or, like, <laughs> or maybe not. Yeah, yeah. Like I, on a lot of the posters, I noticed that, and I'm like, what do they keep doing? They're really hedging their bets with it yeah, now. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, it's like this person died, or, or did, did they? they? Right. <laughs> Before we really hit the wall, let's try something a little different. Instead of recording an interlude where we discuss a room in detail back at the apartment, let's listen in on some of the live audio commentary recorded directly outside the fifth room. Unbeknownst to one another, Doug and I both felt compelled to record personal audio diaries while standing in the food court after each of our separate teams had escaped the unlucky mummy. Let's tune in as we start to feel the effects of playing too many escape rooms together. 
Uh, I'm here at the fifth room of uh, Escape Parlor in KL. Just want to take some notes. So you just get out of the unlucky mummy. So this story was really weird. Like, so they had excavated a mummy at the British Museum. It was bad luck, so they tried to ship it off to the American Museum. Apparently it sunk on the Titanic, but then we didn't understand... Apparently it wasn't clear, there were rumors that maybe the British Museum hadn't put it on the Titanic. So we were there to like, at the museum, to break into the museum and uh, check out the rumors. And basically they split the group up into two pairs of two. Um, Chad and Chung Lun were in a gallery space that was basically um, kind of an H shape. It was like two hallways uh, with a cross in the middle, um, basically like a room with two half walls. And then we were in a small gallery with four plinths on the right and a series of mirrors on the left. Uh, I, I at first was convinced um, and at the close your eyes uh, hieroglyphics translation, uh, it was something to do with the lasers. So there were all these lasers and mirrors. We thought originally, like immediately, that the green laser shining to the each mirror just had to be aligned with the photocells in order to open the door between the two rooms. And then at first I was like trying to uh, aim the lasers at the, the two eyes, even though the attendant had told me at the beginning the lasers were decoration. The lasers happened to just be a complete mistake. They're just like uh, something from another puzzle that no longer works. I, I, by the end, was convinced that they had to be a puzzle, because why else would they be there? It was clearly a vestige of another puzzle. The way you actually got out between the two rooms was Shung Lun and Chad passed some information to us, including a series of digits that they interpreted from the backside of the door that was separating us, and transparency paper. Uh, the two paintings that were chained together had three transparencies inside them, and then you put them together with the two transparencies from the other room to like uh, spell out a three-digit code for one of the locks. Uh, <laughs> Eventually, I gave them all back to the other room to try to figure out why I just brute force, because if I know that the middle digit is zero, uh, it's just 100 combinations for me to try all of them. And then somehow I have to do the 100, it just works. So uh, we never actually even finished the transparency puzzle. So in each room, in Chad and Chung Lin's room, there was two gold paintings back to back uh, with a chain around them and a lock. And in our room, there were two silver paintings back to back. Each of these paintings was of one of the Egyptian gods, which corresponded to the four plinths in our room, which had their names. There were also four spots on the walls in Chung Lin's room to hang these paintings. They had to give us a key to open up one of the um, wall painting locks, and they also had to give us um, a three-digit code that we used on the two locked together paintings. Things. Uh, we tried that for a long time until we, I, I actually got the button on the lock to work. Um, so it was a weird three-digit lock uh, where we had trouble with the, with the button. And so when we reveal, when we unlocked using the codes the two walls uh, by combining our papers and also the codes, um, there was also uh, an alphabet on the plinths that said cover the eyes. So we pressed our hands against the eyes and the electromagnet separating us um, dissipated. So then we had the two rooms connected. Um, very loud music. I was having to scream into the other room um, at Goldie and Laura. And in fact, everyone else in the parlor could uh, hear us which is really interesting and we could kind of hear Shang Lun's voice uh, you, you know which inspired a whole bunch of thoughts like what, what if they consequentially designed different escape room teams to actually interact with each other after the lasers this was the second problem all the paintings had uh, strings on them but those strings were um, 
too high for the RFID chips. So basically, each painting had to be hung by its frame, not its string. So I don't understand why they have the strings in there. But anyway, once we hung those, two small um, boxes on the ground opened up. So there were two in uh, Laura and Goldie's room, the two really weird, like, small wooden boxes on the floor and, and kind of awkward positions where you might trip over them. Uh, and at some point, when we, um, I'm trying to remember, when we hung the four paintings on the wall in the right places, I guess it operated as a motor and a weird metal rod in each box slowly moved forward until it popped open the box. Very weird. Um, and uh, there were, that's where we found the uh, cheap, inflatable, torn heart and, and, uh, and the feather inside. And there was also a mural of Anubis in the back of Shanglin's room with two uh, uh, platforms with X's on them where its hands were weighing. And so there was also a picture found in Zhonglim's room of Anubis weighing these two elements, and it was kind of distorted. Uh, and most of those puzzles were extremely rote. Like, you know, when we unlocked, uh, after the, the heart and the feather, there was just a case of the, of the four gods' heads that we then put in the pedestal in our room, but there was no... It was extremely straightforward, like the, the heart and the feather, and the hard part was actually the operating of it. Beneath the picture frame was a cabinet, and um, it was just like a white plinth. And so that opened, revealing four small idols uh, that were the four gods. And so we brought those to our room, placed them on the um, plinths, and then pressed two buttons in the room that we didn't know what did before that moment. One was red for the heart, one was green for the feather. With that, we could push a wall and enter this mummy chamber. The room with the sarcophagus that we finally unlocked was a mess. Oh, that was another door that was like magically open with an electromagnet from the four pedestal things, I think. What to say about that? Geez, there was like a letter, instead of numbers, letter on like a locker, kind of circular lock. Uh, and on the back of it, Laura discovered later a sticker that said ADN, as if that was like the default, uh, I think, code that came with the lock. Um, that apparently they never changed, and of course ABN didn't relate to the story at all. In the mummy chamber, we had to blow out four candles that were uh, microphones, and hanging on the, so this was kind of the third fucked up thing, hanging on the side of the sarcophagus was a key, and that was the key to open uh, the book. And then after calling for a hint, uh, we finally learned that there was just a random key hanging from the right side of the sarcophagus, where we couldn't see it, that was never hinted anywhere. Um, it had nothing to do with anything. There was just a random key hidden in the darkness in the room that we had to find to open the book to then uh, get the Polaroid. Um, so there was like a book in a box. The box was found in the sarcophagus room, but where was the book found? Have you done the mummy? Where was the book found? The book was found the book was in, was in, the, in the It was in the artifact room on top of one of the pictures. Just the first thing we found. Right, where was the picture frame found? I'm just doing post, Laura, going through it again, yeah. in my mind. Um, the picture frame with... Uh, a new race, yeah. yeah. Um, that was also found... On that same pedestal? On the same pedestal. Okay. Um, and to even um, open that plastic book, uh, for the longest time, we kind of knew there must be a magnetism inside to open up this weird cardboard puzzle box. Uh, and that, that was the, the, that, the box that had these two Polaroids. But, um, so this is crazy that you got to look on the side of the sarcophagus for a key that was arbitrarily used to open the book. Once you open the book, it gave you two magnets. Two magnets could be used on the top of the wooden box that we found in the sarcophagus room to open it up. And then after you opened it up, inside the wooden box were two thermal photos. Finally, 
uh, one of the polarized that said blank, S is the only way out, and the, the first word was half scratched out, that word was darkness. Uh, you need to know that to blow out these electronic candles that actually had a blow detector, and when the room was dark, it opened up the sarcophagus. And those photos you could breathe on, and they gave you a locker combination, and you used the locker combination to get three letters to open the sarcophagus, you could exit through the sarcophagus. Um, and then finally, like, we were told that it was a 50-5-0 minute room, but apparently we got it with 60 minutes. We used four hints, so we would just like, use this weird phone, and it wasn't, like, it's a, they give, give us a phone and you have to like put in this sequence of numbers to even call the intercom, which was like a little user unfriendly. Um, like, it wasn't clear how many hints you're even allowed, so it just it felt so mushy knowing that you can just have infinite hints uh, and that like, there was no clock in the room to show us the time, so we were constantly wondering how much time we had left. Uh, and there was, yeah, again, absolutely no, there was zero debriefing, not even an attendant came to the door. Uh, and we never really figured out what happened or with like, a cursed mummy. Like, we did go through the uh, kind of big sarcophagus to leave the museum. Um, it was also unclear why the two of us were kind of separated from the others, separated in the museum. It was deeply frustrating, probably the most frustrating. Kind of at like half-assed uh, room of trip. Um, it's a very, very strange uh, experience. But I, I almost enjoyed relishing uh, hitting that wall, emotional wall, uh, just not wanting to be there. Laura, Laura especially was deeply frustrated. Um, anyway, um, those are some quick notes. So that's it, that's the whole thing. Now we'll catch up with the whole team as one by one they hit their limits at the fifth room. Before we got super into um, the details of the rooms, I wanted yeah. to discuss the overall structure, which was similar in a bunch of them. They're all multi-room spaces. But there was a feature which they would split one or two members apart of, from the group mm. and sort of lock them into a separate room. And that was in yeah. every room that we experienced? Yeah, yeah and often the, it except was... For in, except for So say you go in with a four-person group, uh, either two or three people would be separated from one person who needs to be, I think, rescued in all yeah. the ones I played yeah. before mm. they could join in on the rest of the, of the puzzles. Yeah, yeah. Well, and both groups are doing puzzles and often yes. passing objects right. through yeah. the door. So they're, they, they're not just waiting, yeah. necessarily. Yeah. yeah, I think Maha Circus was not like that because it was the family one. It was designed for children. It's not an evil, horrible clown on the poster. <laughs> what was that clown's name? Mr. Boo Boo? Who's lost his eyes? Yeah. His eyes. His eyes. They said his retinas. Yeah. Red nose. These um His red nose, not his retinas. What? You thought that the whole time? Okay. So the fact that we were split into these two different rooms, which was like when we were at Mission Q, this was completely exciting when we did the two yep. different rooms yes. with the asymmetrical information as a group of ten. This time, it was the exact opposite reaction that I think is what led to... Um, Mass hysteria? Ma yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I guess, otherwise... 
butterflies come to be known as the wall, the wall. because so there was much. a literal and figurative wall right. and there was something about that symbolic or the physical divide that actually yeah. made it really really hard to want to puzzle yeah. solve yeah. Yeah. So, like, yeah. so like I remember there was a so we had to make a decision about who do we lock in the toilet right for one of them and we're just and so Jay nominated himself to go into the into the toilet of a subway because apparently subways have toilets and um, <laughs> and so that's where he spent about 20 minutes yeah. no, and we got no. locked yeah. Laura and I got we stayed, mostly sitting yeah. on the floor yeah. getting very hot and it got no. when we eventually <laughs> opened when we cracked the the code and opened the door just like a rush of <laughs> <laughs> okay okay so Jay clearly hit the wall sitting in a toilet <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I think Stephanie uh, described it super well. Uh, so what was the phrase you called it? Um, cinem- Cinematic uh, despondency. <laughs> yeah, so and that was, I was, the second you said that, I was like, that is exactly okay. how I felt. So, yeah. so um, why did that happen? It's because I think it was like maybe at the 15 or the 20 minute mark where we weren't making much progress and you were literally sitting in the toilet. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it, it was really loud and it was really dark. So Doug was by like an electrical circuit puzzle panel and I was right by the door and you were right by the door feeding us some potentially relevant information. And we've been doing that for a while. And there was a moment when like my head was against the wall and my hand was on the door and like your head was also on the wall it reminded me of that like Spock and <laughs> that scene with Kirk and Star Trek 3 yeah, yeah Star Trek 3. but that's also the poster and, and, of yeah, that room and we just I, we just didn't want to go we just didn't want to do it anymore like, yeah. like there was no desire to, to even so, escape the toilet so I want to hear moments when people hit the wall and I was sitting in this art gallery well standing in this art gallery yeah. going, why doesn't this art gallery have seats yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. feeling grateful for the Beethoven to yeah. stop us from mutating in the yeah. complete darkness yeah. for a good 20 minutes oh, maybe you're more? just chilling no we were in not that room at all. for 60 minutes in total so mm. it easily could have been like a 30 minute just in a dark closet. But we I was in the other room during this yes. we, weren't, we weren't even sure who we were waiting for it was a little unclear because like both of us were trying to make sense so and we could get into the details but there were all sorts of like vestiges of old puzzles that it turned out yeah. we didn't need like there were all these like lasers uh in the room that weren't in operation anymore anyway so it was like and f- yeah. like yeah. for me and laura sitting in there hitting the wall hard it was it was <laughs> double because you were hitting the wall outside yeah you were saying there's nothing for me to solve <laughs> <laughs> I have a question. Do you think adding um, slits on the walls or, or a, a tiny window would have made it um, easier or less? Um, yes, in one of the rooms in the judge. Wait, okay, what I is... I just put, kept putting my face... Oh, yeah, that's right! I forgot yeah. what you're talking about. Like, freaking Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so wait, this is what we did. You know, all work and no play, yeah
the person on the inside of that room was supposed to ostensibly be rescued, right? Right. Because yeah. you can solve a puzzle on the outside, but you still have a dead bolt on the bottom that you can't reach. You have to wait for the others. Right. I'm like, wait, no, I can do this. I put all the handcuffs together oh. into a long oh. chain, oh. and then I stuck my arm and went, okay, no, my head. <laughs> so it's now like this. The, Halfway in through the hole and just try to dangle it and being there for about ten just minutes. Wait, hang on, no, yeah, give me all the handcuffs and I'll unlock the bolts actually. Alright, so a new plan is being tried, uh, attempted where all of the handcuffs are being gathered together. Clarissa is currently removing all the handcuffs from the bars. So Shang Lun's currently sticking his head, I can see through the bars of the window. Alright, Clarissa's, Clarissa's now having a oh, yes! Oh, yes! A shout out to that room's strobe lighting. I did like the strobe lighting. I do like it. What? You liked it? I liked it. So my my favorite hitting the wall moment wasn't me, but uh, maybe it was my group in Haha Circus where. Oh no! <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Haha Circus is the room for kids, and you have to break in. You you're told that the well, I don't, I'm not going to recap the story, but you break into a circus and you find this clown's dressing room. And we solve everything. It's me, Amani, and Chad. We solve everything. We know. We, we switch out the lights all around his mirror that he puts his makeup on. Uh, we have his, like, red nose and his freakish clown mask. And we know that you have to knock a certain pattern on the door to finally exit. And we try it, and nothing is happening. Yeah. And we try it, and nothing is happening. And then she- <laughs> Chad wears the clown mask and is knocking slowly on the door in full horror clown. Ew. So this is like Boo Boo's room, right? Where's his nose? Turns out one of us has to be Boo No, don't put it on Chad. You'll become Boo Boo. Put it on, put it on. Maybe we have to look in the mirror. Do it, do it, do it. Maybe we need to put the mask on and knock. <laughs> yeah, do it. I'm scared. Maybe we have to put the nose on and knock. Oh, yeah, what is that nose for? Yeah, put the nose on. Wait, can someone without glasses put this on? Yeah. Do it. Yeah. The money. Uh-uh. Yes. Well, so Chad is putting on the bobo mask, and he's going to do his knocking routine at the door. Wait, and did it work? Mr. Boo-Boo! No, we learned Then he went back and put the nose on, just the nose. That's right. Then it opened. It did! It did! But that wasn't the actual story. He was missing his nose! It was because weird. No, no, it wasn't. So the reason why it didn't work initially was we were doing it too slow. And so I think by the time I had put the red nose, I tried it maybe five, six times. I was probably doing it faster. And it finally worked. It just goes, and it opened. And I let, and Amani's like, wait, how did it work? And then I turned around turned with, around. The, with the, the, the red nose on, and I'm like, I wonder why! <laughs> and I was the clown. 
<laughs> See, that's great. Like that is that is why I'm here. Is for those. But moments. There, there were a number, and I think uh, there are some crit- criticisms to level of these rooms. Uh, one happened in the subway room, uh, and Stephanie was there. But we had there was this weird computer screen on the wall that was like had a hand, and when you put your palm on it, it would like look at the fingerprints, and it would say, "Oh, they were a bad match." Mm-hmm. And we had no idea, like, would there be some sort of like. Uh, fake hand that we could put on it and then we found a first aid kit that was full of all sorts of like old gauze and for like five minutes I was like oh the fingerprints are probably still on the old bandages if we put the old bandages <laughs> we have I don't we can't tell if this is real but there was a wow bandage w-o-w bandage on the floor I don't know we, we can't tell if it's trash or not we're looking around and the, it's ambiguous whether this is trash okay hold on I'm gonna keep looking but I may have just picked up uh, either something that's part of the game or that's just somebody's old bandage. Wow bandage. Wow. Wow, Bob. Wow. Wow. Okay, hold on. These are, are you testing numbers. wow? Oh, God. We have easy, dirty. Is it really going to know? Can't believe we're doing this. Alright, what is the goal of this? It's to use these fingerprints on the thing, right? Oh boy. Wait, there's no way this is true, right? Am I making this up? So it's a first aid kit, and we're wondering if we have to use the dirty cotton swabs to put that on the handprint RFID for pattern recognition. For fingerprint recognition. <laughs> it had nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, this was clearly them. not the solution, but I wanted it to be, and I really enjoyed you advocating for <laughs> exploring that possibility. But it was because it was it was because um, like there was so much extraneous information, and then the solution to that puzzle didn't even require actual fingerprints. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. just putting an I- the person's ID card and then using your hand, but it could have been anyone's conductive hand. So it was like, because we've played so many escape rooms, like filling in these gaps in ways we shouldn't be to like augment these incomplete mm-hmm. narratives. And yeah, there's just nothing. I love that you that. thought that the technology was possible such that there could be fingerprints <laughs> right. on the <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't know what to think. I was dr- drawing at straws. I wonder whether like the actual ridiculousness of the feeling mm. of some of these puzzles mm. is what made it actually so pleasurable for, yeah. for I mean, us. So seeing like, Shanghai's body halfway out <laughs> right. of a window. It was ridiculous. A lot of this was ridiculous. <laughs> and, and that's so playful and like sort of you, you sort of take on the role a little bit more when you are feeling ridiculous and you try out wacky theories and I yes. I wonder if what took us to the wall was actually the dividing a sub. Because it felt like I lost my agency in that I was like well, the solution is probably in their room, yeah. and totally. I just yeah. don't have the information I need to actually solve anything, so yeah. I was like, I'll yep. just sit down on the floor. Yep. I have a question. <clears throat> I'll just sit down. For, for you and everybody, though. If it wasn't day five, would mm. we have felt the same? I mean, like, yeah, this we mechanic, would we? is this a product of you know, it being Spoiled. the 30th escape room, or... Half, half and half, yes. Yeah. So, so you contra- have my perspective as the oh, virgin? Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> So this was, uh, again, uh, this was Clarissa's very first (laughs) escape room experience. So, yes. I'm so sorry. Slash, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I played the first room, which was the judge room. Yeah. And it was um, interesting for me, but I probably hit the wall by a different. Yeah. Well, mostly because I had to, like, squat down a lot. By the time I stood up, I was already, like, at it a lot Mm -hmm. of times, actually. Mm -hmm. 
uh, throughout that time and basically like you know finding random things like the key stuck in one of the wax fingers yeah. like yeah. severe fingers is like do you want um, more fingers? no it's probably okay uh, only once again there's some fingers uh, the classic dollar store fingers that we've seen right. many times Did you get any more with that uh, but they don't seem to be relevant to the hard. situation here oh Clarissa, how did you find the key? It was on a finger. Okay, you're, you're free. Well, I'm free. Well, no, she's not free yet. Where is that? Okay, we're out of the hangar. Yeah, that's fine. Let's grab it like finger. Okay. So there was a finger that uh, had the key to Shanghai. Okay. There's another finger out there. Let's see if there's anything useful. No, that's the only thing that is useful. I, I wasn't even... It was just because like I was so desperate to find something but yeah. because I couldn't find that leverage that we needed to do it. I think right. he found it just because he went to the other side of the room. And you know, and that serendipitious find allowed us to unhandcuff ourselves and allow him to string together a bunch of handcuffs to do what is probably not part of the game. Right. And also like trying to figure out how to open the trap door and also trying to... And also working through the code that uh, just didn't really make sense actually logically I mean without mm. the hint we probably wouldn't have been able to solve that which one? the one where we were supposed to decipher the numbers with the blackboard with the blackboard oh, to yeah. get the yeah, codes through and I mean it seems I mean they're good puzzles but mm -hmm. there's I was just thinking like deductively I don't think I would have been able to arrive at them mm -hmm. at all right. well, you got the blinking light on there the blinking light only because I noticed that it was blinking it looked like it was like it was either Moscow or some signaling Mm -hmm. So it can't just be blinking for no reason. But of course, there were also a number of red earrings mm -hmm. that are like that skeleton. There were a lot in there. For instance, yeah. the strobing yeah, really laser lights in the other room. What was the other room called? Um, the, uh, the mummy. I mean, the the yeah. unlucky the mummy. The unlucky mummy that was the one that I didn't distract. Particularly Patrick for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, we were hanging out in a laser room that uh, ended up just being decorations. Hey, hey, Shenmue, you know what? I bet if we solve these lasers real fast... Uh, is it like solve it? It is, and I think this door will open. Okay, okay. So we're going to work on that for just like three minutes, okay? 20 minutes later. What was the code to call? I'm going to call about these lasers uh, because I, I think what? we did it exactly so right. I just think they might be missing one. Hi there. Um, we're working on the laser puzzle in the first room of the mummy, and I feel like we've got it. Uh, really? Yep, got it. Thank you. I think we know the rest. Uh, the lasers are just decorations. The lasers are just decorations. I think that a lot of the the specialness of this is that it has the kind of badness that like a roadside DIY um, mm. attraction has. Mm -hmm. So like the things that were in it, you know, it has sort of all of the, the components. They're just, and it's not even that they're badly executed. There's just a special kind of absurdity about like them. Like a B-movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like in the Egyptian one, there were these boxes on the floor that for just randomly, <laughs> like an ex, uh, a linear actuator just like pop, sort of pops yeah. them open and it's like on somebody's foot. Yeah. And then there's like this kind of crappy rubber heart in it and it just, none of it sort of makes sense. But like they, they kind of didn't try, but it's, it's charming in a way. Like mm -hmm. I don't know how to kind of get yeah. close to that, but like that's what was making it Fun. Yeah, there, there's a different mm -hmm. kind of love and a different kind of emphasis, I think, in this particular one that produces this absurdity. And that's, I think, a love of like the gadgetry, like those arms that pop those boxes open are 
clearly somebody who's like into yeah. like just using those tools <laughs> and needed to do they something could have easily been a magnet they're just like yeah. deep like you know and then just released the hatch but no they had this beautiful moment of like, <laughs> when that when you heard those buzzing um, arms Ooh. push forward I thought the floor was like yeah. gonna open up yeah. sure. my feet I'm like oh whoa it was such a disappointment when there's just this like yeah. weird metal arm pops out of this weird wooden box <laughs> on the floor and then there's just like the most disappointing plastic <laughs> it's a good broken heart. Yeah, it's a good. I, whether or not it was intentional, um, um, it, it was yeah. still this kind of surreal. This does remind me of like B movies though, because a lot of the love in like a B horror movie is for uh, makeup techniques, mm. right, or for specific filming techniques, mm. and so you fall in love with effects. And you don't need story; you just need genre. Okay. Mm. Well, can, can I, I think uh, maybe part of what was interesting, even compared to some of the escape rooms we did earlier in the week, is it felt like maybe like a B movie. There were huge ambitions with some of these rooms that weren't mm. um, always met. I don't know if this is a good time to talk about uh, the subway game that only three of us played: me, Jay, and Stephanie. Um, the ending of this game was really wild. So after like forty minutes of deep frustration uh we finally open this hatch in the bathroom and uh one is by far the most physically dangerous escape room i've ever done you could never get away with this in the united states with this Whoa. like rickety ladder uh and stephanie maybe talk about you had to go up and like open this hatch while you're still yeah, like like a hatch to an addict and it's really really heavy and so it's like falling on my head as i'm trying to like climb up because i can't actually push it over to the side and um, and then, you know, I get up and the, the floor isn't sanded very well either. So, yeah. like, your hands mm. are getting splinters. And I actually had to backtrack. And it turns out that climbing down that ladder was exponentially harder than climbing right. up it. Because it, it wasn't really designed for that. But we had to go and retrieve some batteries that we so, left behind. So here's the key moment okay. for me. We get, and it's almost like the video game portal when you finally leave the nice lab and get into mm -hmm. the rooms outside the lab. So there's this completely unfinished room, which is clearly like whatever back. It's a subway station. Uh, is it a real subway or, station? Well, no, no, not like. <laughs> 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 it feels like that. Yeah, it's like it you're in some like sewer of the actual building. <laughs> it smelled super bad and moldy. Oh. Uh, there was like gross oh, yeah. stuff on the floor, and so they like actually used a legit gross room as part of this <laughs> this escape room. But then, okay, oh, so then we finally wow. we finally see this bomb, which I'll also talk about as an interesting mechanic. Uh, and we, we're trying to like unlock the door so we can go try to defuse the bomb but there's this puzzle in the room where it's like a pretty uh standard one of these logic puzzles like uh well this number uh in this row two of the numbers are correct but in the wrong position but in this none of them are in the right position so here we are with like a black light flashlight solving a deeply mundane like number <laughs> logic puzzle in this like Laminated piece of paper. On a laminated piece of paper, uh, but in the midst of this like totally ambitious, completely wild scene right. after like climbing this dangerous ladder, and this the contrast between the like almost uh, cliched escape room moment with this kind of deeply, I felt almost experimental touch, um, and so that that to me was that that again ambition differential yeah. slash still using like very standard escape room puzzles was a, a deeply symbolic uh, difference to me. The, the graffiti itself oh, was yeah. pretty dramatic too. This is yet another case of the use of swastikas on the wall along with other 
forms of iconography like dollar signs and things to signify graffitiness, I guess. But um, um, then the final thing worth talking about here, so the end is a bomb, and as you start to get close to it, it sets off, uh, and then you have a minute to decide what wire to pull, and there's like six different colored <laughs> wires. Um, so poor Jay, we send him over uh, the window, and he gets into the room and starts going, and we go, uh, and we knew this was going to happen because we were warned by this in the onboarding. Uh, but you were tempting fate too. You're like, oh, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna lean over and start a. Oh, I'm it. the one. That's right. <laughs> no, no, I'm, no, the, I'm the one who said it off. Long arms, Wilson. Uh, so, <laughs> so, of course, we didn't figure it out. So we just guessed, and of course, we pulled the wrong one. So we lost, which is interesting to have this like final challenge uh, that wasn't really based on any information through the previous games. So even that we got through the game, uh, then there was. A, so it turned out to me this was a, a anticlimax. Uh, there was, like, if you had used the blacklight again, uh, up kind of above the room, you could see some hidden information, but you only have a minute in which to find that information. Mm -hmm. What really mm -hmm. highlights what you were saying about someone excited about the tools is that the guy came in and told us we lost. He told me that it was better that we lost because we got to see the red flashing light. And if you win, you don't get to see the red flashing light. So it's better to lose. <laughs> yeah. It is better to lose sometimes. Wait, so is the red flashing yeah. light mean that you exploded? Yes. 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 Wow. Was it an interesting red flashing light? It's, it's no, in just, circles. Just, I think he was just proud of it. That's interesting because in one of ours, it took us 60 minutes, and I thought it was a 45 minute yeah. room. Yeah. But so we, they didn't pull us out or anything. Not they just sort mm -hmm. of let us keep going. And no debriefing. Yeah, no you know debriefing. what? Which room I, is that? Sorry. Oh, that was Egypt. Um, the the mummy. Yeah, unlucky, unlucky mummy. mummy. Yeah, because the they told our group that your group longer than our group. Yeah, yeah that's right. We, took, oh, we also took 60 minutes in the subway terror game, even though it was supposed to be a 50 And minutes. I think Strange. one thing that's happening throughout all these games that's a little bit different the is we're right. burning hints like mad, like oh. multiple hints over and over. Yeah. They handed us a phone when we went in and just call this number if you need a hint. And we sure did. There sure were did. other options, but we were completely unable to recognize yeah. moment. <laughs> there was just no will to puzzle solve. Is that bad? I think, yeah. I think is yeah, that bad at design? one point I was like, uh, I really don't want to count those balls. I did the same I thing in, in the judge. I just was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm getting the clue because this is going to take us seven minutes at least. Mm -hmm. Like, hey, and I literally, I, he answered and he said, hello. I said, hi, just wondering what the code is for yeah. this puzzle. <laughs> it's like, oh, five, seven, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I called, so uh, um, Clarissa and I, I were working on, yeah. like, um, carefully orienting a series of, like, nine green lasers so they hit a series of nine uh, totally wired photo cells on the wall. Mm. And we're sure we nailed it. We did it like three times, like just to double check that they're dead hitting every single one of them. And we call, and the phone picks up, and it's <laughs> that's that's decoration. Don't worry about oh. it. <laughs> at, at the very beginning of that room, the mummy, I, I saw the laser, and I thought they were kind of trip lasers, and I was like, oh, should I be careful about that? And he said, no, they're just decorations. But even though he said that. I still was like, wait, there's nothing to do in my room. It's got to be the lasers. I bet he was trying to throw me off. So even though he literally told me, because, again, it was this problem of it wasn't clear um, where the kind of division but, of so puzzle labor was. So do you think every day... Do you think every day they're watching 
people work on the lasers yeah. for yes. oh, absolutely. because they're super fun OH&S as well those things were at eye level yeah and I, I, I we, Laura and I had to walk through them to get to our little hiding spot and I said to him uh, are these can we look at these and he said I wouldn't recommend yeah. <laughs> oh no <laughs> well I think we, there, that's actually really interesting because we didn't know if we could trust what they were telling us mm. partly I think because the posters are all really really horror themed and then the rooms were sort of like vaguely especially in the clown situation mm. where it's actually a kids game but it's like it, it's like really scary on that not outside. when Chad plays well, but, <laughs> but we were asking like is this scary and he's like no not at all and then like the judge one was like kind of scary there were scary. fingers yeah but, but, <laughs> but we just we had no way of assessing if they were just sort of like teasing us a little bit or not and like the, the spiel that they did as well sort of implied that it was a scary story <clears throat> but then it wasn't yeah, so this this wasn't a moment of like puzzle solving absurdity, but when we came out of the judge, so um, <laughs> actually, we you know we were talking about Malaysia at the start mm-hmm. of this podcast, and this is actually the first example where, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, where there was um, within the narrative onboarding, they actually uh, introduced a story that involved a Malaysian judge who was like was sick and tired of all the crime that was going on yeah. and was like ready to crack you can, like, down bribe your way out of anything yeah, yeah the not this just yeah. not this just so it was like it was kind of like a vigilante <laughs> malaysian <laughs> judge yeah. judge dread yeah but well malaysian i saw <laughs> judge bow well that's so this is the thing so we Chinese yeah so we we walked out and and clarissa like after you you had played the game it reminded you of of Judge Bao. Do you want to just, like, quickly... Yeah, like, no, what's Judge Bao? Well, initially, us? when I first saw that, right, I thought it was something out of the American horror story. Yeah. Right, because yeah. of the, kind of, uh, this... The environment, as well as the setting. Yeah. yeah. But, because he mentioned the Malaysian context, because we don't really have such a judge in Malaysia at all, <laughs> as far as I know, whether <laughs> mythically or historically, or even presently, or even within the past... Your uh, <laughs> life past. Like yeah, so I was thinking that maybe like they were actually drawing the history a little bit far, you know, further back, given the you know the rich cultural backgrounds and histories of the people who come here. So, and I was just thinking the only vigilante judge I know about in Asian history, I mean, as close as that could be is maybe Judge Bao. You know, there are many versions of that. So, and um, just really quick though, Judge Bao, yeah. he it's like who a, a historic. There's a, a historical figure. justice uh, called Justice Bao, but the original Justice Bao is not really that interesting. But there are many <laughs> myths that grew out of that, just like Renji, which is also another detective slash justice who also not particularly interesting as a Real actual person. person, but very has very interesting myths. Oh, like, yeah, so there's one version I think in Pu Songling's adaptation of the story, or somebody who adapted Pu Songling's story, where Justice Bao became like this Justice Pao who is also a judge in Hades, and his job is basically to judge the souls that pass through. You know, mm-hmm. so you know which levels of because power to confine them. Because he judged wrong while he was on Earth, right? Like he yeah. judged the wrong person, and so, then he ended up in hell. And so, became the justice in hell. So, so Clarissa kind of mentions this and goes up to the attendant and asks, "Oh, hey, does this like have any connection to uh, Justice Bow?" And he just looks at her and goes, "What? No, it's Saw. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Saw the movie. Yeah. Oh he didn't which, know who Justice Bow was. No. Why do you think? What you know?" In all the places that we've been to, there's just a lot of 
all the references are to Hollywood movies. Because mm-hmm. that's where they're drawing from. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, it was remember when some of us went to the comic fun. art festival where mm-hmm. we actually see young artists who are at very stage stages of their careers. Mm-hmm. Some of them actually ask you pretty much at the like you know immersion to imitation stage. So they are technically right. very competent. They do very beautifully, very strong attention to details. I mean, there's like no mystic in their drawing, right. but they haven't reached the point where they have like their voice. Their own that. thoughts and ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So their own ideas and maybe even the voice or is there another term for voice for artists? If it's uh, not a voice. Maybe style. Their signature style. Signature their signature style. style. Yeah. So even though it's beautiful and it's very well done, it kinda of reminded me of like, you know, the academic artists yeah. right. who basically portray I mean, I think this was during the nineteenth century where they do beautiful paintings. But they're pretty much imitation of the style of the period. Correct. So they are basically like imitating the manga style, but they haven't actually quite adapted it like within mm. the context. Yeah. I understand the conversation. So we're in that like, imitation moment of escape yeah. rooms, maybe. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've, As you mentioned before, with like the Rolling Stone, <laughs> that's cool. Sometimes, like you know, with Australian artists, for example, a lot of like uh, Australian art would jump when particular painters came back from Europe, and they they did a whole lot of learning of European styles, and then like incorporate that in the Australian style and like again with manga you know we see that creeping in now with animation and the blendings of styles but yes I think escape rooms you could definitely say that there's this teething period where they're hmm. they know what they're doing uh to make a game that you can move through but there's not much of that personal expression business to business or designer to designer luckily you know there's some in the room who I think is sort of like focusing on that a little bit more um yeah and I think uh, I think that's actually going to be it for tonight. Uh, we've been going for a long time. Um, I'm not sure if there's uh, any more we can do after we've hit this wall uh, for tonight. And we'll be coming at you next time with some more guests and some more games. So, more escape rooms. Yeah, yeah. finally. Uh, so maybe 35 next. Uh, Parkour across that wall. <laughs> hey, thanks very much, Thank Chris. Uh, let's yeah, give Chris a round of applause for joining us in this live Yeah, thanks. Uh, That was great. Every Game in the City is a podcast on the Idle Thumbs Network. We recorded season one in a hot bedroom in Pitaling Jaya during the summer of 2018. Our theme music is a cover of Seiko 4 by Yasuaki Shimizu, a piece he originally composed for a wristwatch commercial in the 1980s. You can find us on the web at everygameinthis.city, as well as most social media networks and podcasting platforms. In two weeks, our next episode will be moderated by Chad Toprak, who will introduce yet another special guest and will lead a discussion on how we tried to climb over the wall by adding our own constraints and making metagames together at Code Factory.